This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour on a cool summer's Sunday morning after last week's heat wave. Wow, what a change in 24 hours. Um, you know, American politics used to take a summer vacation in August. But that's another norm that the Trump presidency has just blown through. And it's one that I, as so many other Americans, would like to restore. We just need a vacation from the craziness, from the whipsaw, from the constant um, emotional, high emotional pitch of our political landscape. So I'm going to spend the next hour or so trying to give you some information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on last week's events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. The numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, triage, as we say, and then how to prioritize the necessary longer-term changes. So in the numbers this week, we can't help but look at a new Fox poll that found President Trump, and mind you, this is a Fox News poll of over a thousand voters, finds President Trump losing to all the so-called Democratic frontrunners, even Bernie Sanders. This is a Fox News poll in which Trump loses by between 12 and 13 points to Biden, but he loses outside the margin of error, so by about four points, to Bernie Sanders. He loses worse than that to 
Elizabeth Warren. That's not that's that's not a, a, a set of options that I find attractive. Only one Democratic presidential nominee uh, aspirant has identified our rapidly rising national debt as a harbinger of future doom. To the other 22 candidates, we lost one this week, ignoring the potential of a looming debt crisis is the first and probably the greatest lie you are telling the American people. I spent a fair amount of time this week, um, because I'm a masochist, I think, sometimes, um, crawling around in the Democratic presidential hopefuls policy papers. What they have in common is short shrift. I came away wondering if they've been watching too many science fiction cartoons in their quest for the magic bullet where all of a sudden the oceans protect us from a world that's not always friendly. So let's talk about those polls for just a minute. And then we're going to talk a little bit further about the science fiction that is democratic policy. As I said, the, the Fox News poll taken after El Paso, where a new poll today in the Wall Street Journal says that 68% of registered voters want stronger gun controls and gun legislation, and that less than half of those polled approve of the president's response to El Paso and Dayton in terms of his forceful advocacy for the types of laws and regulation that would, in fact, reduce some of these incidents and and his use of language, which some people believe um, in endorses or or uh, strengthens or incentivizes white supremacists. <clears throat> None of these numbers are good, okay? Joe Biden, 50% to Trump's 38. Elizabeth Warren, 46 to 39. Even Kamala Harris, who's not polling well anywhere, beats him 45 to 39. And Bernie Sanders, 48 to 39, ahead of Elizabeth Warren. Now, what's even more striking is that voters who had a negative view, now I want you to listen carefully, a negative view of both Joe Biden and Donald Trump back Biden by a 43 to 10 percentage margin in a head-to-head matchup. Although, and, and Jim Rex, our frequent guest, is going to be happy to hear this because 27% of those people say they'd vote for someone else. But unfortunately, 12% who voted in 2016 say they would simply not vote, that they couldn't make a choice between those set of choices. They couldn't vote to reelect the president, but they couldn't support any of these Democrats. And 8% are sitting on the fence. That puts them likely in the I won't vote category and takes that category to 20% of registered voters. Think about that. We could have a 20% reduction. We already had barely 50% of registered voters vote in 2016, and we could see 20% of those 
falling away so that we would end up, if you do the math, uh, with about 40, 41% of the electorate voting. And you know who those people are going to be? Not the moderates, not people like you and me, not common sense conservatives, but the extremes on both the right and the left. And this is destroying America's constitutional system because it has implications all the way down the ballot. We're not just talking about the presidency. We're talking about the entire ballot. And 2018 was a... Uh, was not an anomaly. So if you want to know what, what that anomaly means, what the fact that 2016, 2018 was not an anomaly, the Democratic Party in this Fox News poll has a six-point positive rating, 51 to 45, while the Republican Party, the GOP, not the presidential candidate, the party itself, all right, so all those members of Congress, et cetera, has a 13-point negative view. In other words, 41% favor, 54% oppose. Part of the reason is that more Democrats, fully 92% of them, like their party while only 84% of Republicans say the same. And remember that since 2016, the Republican Party ranks have shrunk by millions. In California, I heard the numbers just the other day. So as we go to break, let me leave you with some numbers, and then we're going to come back from break and talk about uh, my co-Salem host, Joe Walsh, and his commentary in the New York Times this week. And what I think that means for all of us. But as we go, as, as we go to break, the numbers in California, 42% of Californians are declined to state or no party preference voters. 42% of us. 31% of us register as Democrats and 24 as Republicans. 24% register as Republicans. Now, the bad news that 42% of us, those no party preference voters, we don't get to vote in the presidential primary. And that's an issue that I think we should address as a group with the California Assembly in the early days of 2020. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about Joe Walsh's challenge to the Republican Party. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with where we are in the polls. What does this mean? Now, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, I, you know, I'm a pessimist about the future of the Republican Party. Um, I just don't see how you come back as a party from some of the positions that have been taken over the last two years. I mean, I'm all for 
a business-friendly environment that means appropriate taxation and uh, and appropriate regulation um, and, and the fact that a regulation written in 1940 doesn't really apply in 2021, et cetera. So you know, I support all of those laudable Republican goals, but that's not the government that we have at the moment. And the government that we have at the moment, if it becomes a hallmark and if you listen to candidates like Kamala Harris who says, well, if they don't enact my plan in 90 days, I am going to do it by executive order and and read uh, Andrew Yang's incredibly detailed platform, um, talk about um, – Lots of one paper, one page plans. Let me tell you, as a businesswoman, a a one page plan is not a plan until you have tasks and people responsible and timelines, et cetera. You don't have a plan. And what is lacking, what is lacking as we look at either party, what is completely lacking in this campaign. Well, two things are lacking. First, you and me. The people who will pay for this, whose children will pay for this, and whose great-great-grandchildren will still be paying for this folly. Where does America want to be at the midpoint of the 21st century? Where do we, as Americans, what do we want to represent? Nobody's talking about those big goals. The Chinese are talking about theirs. Hegemony of the world by mid-century, okay? The United States, our, our presidential candidates are not thinking beyond the ballot box in 2020. And in the meantime, we are running trillion-dollar annual deficits as far as the eye can see. And that worries me. And that worries senior senator from Colorado, Michael Bennett. And that worries a lot of people. Um, people, classic, classic establishment Republicans, all of a sudden have forgotten about debt and deficit. What happened to the Tea Party? Well, one former Tea Party Congress per- and, and one term congressperson, Joe Walsh, Um, penned an opinion piece in the New York Times this week urging a primary challenge to the right of Donald Trump. And while some have postulated that Walsh is positioning himself for that role, and, you know, he was on hardball with Chris Matthew this week, um, and he made a lot of sense, and and he is a silver fox. um, And I'm not just saying that because... He works for Salem. I'm saying that because he is a silver fox. He looks the part. In in a country that elected the uh, the board of directors, the chairman of the board, right, uh, on a television reality show, you look at Joe Walsh, who does several hours of radio every day, um, and and you see a guy who absolutely looks the part. But I don't think he's going to give up a highly lucrative career in radio and on the speaker bureau circuit to engage in what would likely be a chaotic race for the GOP presidential nomination. 
Although, one never knows, and one must think. Interesting. After El Paso and Dayton, did we hear anything from Mitt Romney? You know what I heard? Silence! Isn't it interesting that John Huntsman, who was a presidential candidate in 2008, um, is now resigning as the ambassador to Russia. He's been the ambassador to China um, and is coming home, and they say, to run for governor of Utah again. Mm, I'm not so sure about that. I think these guys may be waiting in the wings. But here's the problem. They're Mormon. No, they're moderate. That's, moderate Mormons. That, that's the concern, Vince, is that is that um, that Walsh makes in this piece in the New York Times that somebody like Bill Weld, who's a lovely human being who was a very successful Republican governor. It's like the current governor of Massachusetts, Baker, is also a Republican. Romney was a very successful governor of Massachusetts. They like that check and balance thing. Um, you, you have a highly democratic legislature and, and you know, in, a, in a, what's called a very liberal state that likes uh Republican businessmen as governor. Anyway, so Bill Weld, has, who ran as the VP candidate with Gary Johnson on the Libertarian ticket in 2016, has declared himself a candidate knowing that he's a sacrificial lamb, knowing that all he's trying to do is, is, is a, have the, uh, the Humphrey effect on, well, Humphrey almost succeeded, on Johnson in 20. In, in 1968, which is to demonstrate within the party the weakness of the incumbent would-be renominated candidate. Um, and, and that is, um, you know, that's a laudable goal. Also considering that challenge to Trump is Mark Sanford, uh, former governor of South Carolina and uh, former Tea Party uh, member before his run as governor, and and subsequently another term in Congress, he was defeated by a, with with help from Trump um, in the South Carolina primary by a further by by a a woman with you know who was solidly a Trumper uh, who lost badly uh, in the a safe Demo- a safe Republican seat. In suburban Charleston, in the in the Low Country, is now held by a Democrat. What Joe Walsh is is suggesting, and and I got to tell you, he makes a good he makes a very compelling case for a conservative challenge to President Trump. And and he he begins this piece by making a series of mea copas for his 2016 vote for Trump. You know, he 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 wraps it in in the same kind of ideals that I just that I just expressed. Okay, that that traditional establishment Republicans believe in a that a a innovative a business friendly uh, government government from a point of taxation and regulation encourages innovation, and it is innovation that drives the American economy. 
We don't make stuff. We buy it from other people, but we invent it first. So that's a good thing and a bad thing as it plays out in the 21st century, meaning that we need to do some things differently. But those are the principles. Those are the principles which Walsh says caused him to vote for Trump in 2016. Here's the problem. I think Walsh is correct. The president is, and I'm going to quote him, um, or maybe what we're going to do, because it's kind of a long quote. So Vince, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about, I'll, I'll read you the quote from Walsh's piece, and then we're going to talk about what it means in practical terms. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And you know, uh, those of you who follow me on Twitter know that I follow Joe Walsh closely. Um, and I often retweet his tweets. I um, loved his work with the Eagles. Um uh, Really different look. Really different. (laughs) The greatest guitarist in the world has a wife with a British accent. Joe Walsh, who is still alive and still playing, still touring with what's left of the Eagles, um, is married to Ringo Starr's sister. I did not know that. Well, now you know that. Uh, I only know that because I saw it on the Kennedy Center Honors. (laughs) When they honored the Eagles. So so there, there's this morning's trivia and lightening up the mood a little bit. So the Joe Walsh I have in mind is the one who is syndicated um, on the Salem Network. Uh, as I said, was a one-term congressman. And, you know, look him, Google him. I mean, this is a guy who looks the part. You oh, can, so you're saying different Joe Walsh? Two different, two different guys. There are two oh, different guys. Okay, yes, great. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Wait, yes. this Joe Walsh, uh, who's a Salem media host, of course. Um, wh- when was he in Congress? When what? What district? Where? Where was he from? I'm not. I am not. I'm. You're asking me a question. I'd have to go look up. Um, All right, I'll get I on think, that. I think it was 20. I think he was part of the original Tea Party class. Ten in in uh, 2010. He was a talk show host before, and I, he only served one term. I don't know if he was defeated or, or, uh-huh. or Illinois, Illinois. Yes, Eighth I district. thought it was in Chicago. It was near Chicago. One term, and then he went back to radio. That's what it looks like. That's a smart man, in my view. Should have went back to the Eagles. Oh, wrong guy. Sorry, two different people. Two different people. But um, this Joe Walsh. <clears throat> is, as I said, a fiscal conservative. Um, he's as a, and, and, a, and, and a guy who believes that we overregulate, as do I. I think, I think, again, we are innovators. The American economy is built on innovation. Regulation is the enemy of innovation in many cases when you, you know, overregulate. So concepts like for every regulation that the government imposes, they should have to retire one that's out of date would make a lot of sense. Um, But that's not the subject at hand. What Walsh wrote this week is that the president is more is 
vulnerable to a challenge from the right. I'm on the right, says Walsh, and I'm hugely disappointed that that challenge has not yet materialized. Mr. Trump, most vulnerable against a challenger who'd make the case for strong borders instead of warning of invaders, dragging us down, turning neighbor against neighbor. A majority of Americans want fixes to our basic problems. We need someone who could stand up, look the president in the eye and say, enough, sir. We've had enough of your indecency. We've had enough of your lies, your bullying, your cruelty, enough of your insults, your daily drama, your incitement, enough of the danger you place this country in every single day. We don't want any of this anymore. And the country certainly can't stand four more years of it. That's a statement I heartily endorse. Donald Trump has done more in two and a half years to rent the fabric of this nation than we could have imagined in our worst imaginings prior to the 2016 election, when we hoped he would grow into the role of being president of the United States, most powerful man on earth, and leader of a rules-based international order. Now, here is the problem with Joe Walsh's eloquent statement. I quoted it because I couldn't have said it better. Who on the right? We need somebody on that right. Somebody who has credibility, governing experience, charisma, and the willingness to sacrifice themselves. Because we need to test the resonance of Walsh's argument in some of the early primary states. And I got it again. Bill Weld is a lovely human being. I had the pleasure of meeting him once, okay? He's a really nice person. He's a lawyer with really good instincts. But when it comes to charisma, nah. Does he get 10%? I'm not sure. You know, it, it's, it, would that calm demeanor stand in opposition to Donald Trump on a debate stage? Ask yourself that question. I'm not sure. So we have another person on the right, and, and that's Mark Sanford. And as I said, Mark Sanford was thought to be in um, the run-up to um, 2012. Uh, he was thought to be the guy most likely to be nominated against, um, to run against Obama for a second term. And the issues on the table were debt, deficit, um, the fail, early failures of Obamacare, et cetera. But then Mark Sanford went for a, quote, walk on the Appalachian Trail that led to Argentina and a divorce and a somewhat tumultuous last year as governor, after which he retired to private business and then ran for Congress. And as I said, Trump managed to knock him off in the primary and lose the seat. But Mark Sanford is as worried as anybody in, on God's good earth about, about the looming problem of uh, out-of-control debt. Um, what Mark Sanford is is a um, moderate, uh, centrist, um, establishment Republican 
with a great sense um, of fiscal responsibility. And he, in Congress, that has always been his reputation as, and, and in South Carolina as a guy with a very tight fist. Um, but he had presidential ambitions. He, you know, now he, he says once you've lost an election, you know, then a, a whole lot of new, new opportunities open themselves because you don't fear losing. You know you're going to survive it. So Mark Sanford was in New Hampshire um, last week exploring the possibility that he may challenge Trump from the right. Um, he's been on MB- MSNBC lately, et cetera. Um, he certainly has motivation. Um, Trump, Trump cost him that seat in Congress, and nobody likes to lose. So he may want to get even. Um, and he can also point to the fact that the result was that Trump, as he did in the Alabama Senate contest, lost a seat for the Republican Party. See, I could vote for Sanford because I agree with his level of alarm over the debt and profligate spending in Washington. He has the skills and the experience, but what he doesn't have is the charisma. He stutters. He's really, really smart. But I don't know that he's the guy who can mount that challenge. So there's the field as it exists. Trump, Weld, Sanford, who can be animated when he's really angry, or your guess as good as mine. There was a moment in 2016 or 2017 when some establishment Republicans thought that South Carolina, Carolinian Lindsey Graham might take up that challenge, that he would inherit the maverick mantle from John McCain. But Lindsey Graham, one, he's a creature of the Senate. He's got his Judiciary Committee chairman, and he's not going anywhere unless the voters in South Carolina send him somewhere. And he said at McCain's passing, don't ask me to be John McCain. But we'll be back in just a moment, and we're going to talk about some things that Lindsey Graham has done over the last two years that are indicative of where the Republican Party is today. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back, and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings. I know a lot of you don't want to hear um, the not-so-friendly-to-Trump perspective, but we've got to be realists when you're looking at the possibility that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris could end up as president of the United States because the Republican Party put its head in the sand, you know, then I would be failing you by not being by not expressing concern um, at this point that maybe we need to consider the possibility that we need to do something different on the right. Or in the middle. You know, because that's where I live, in the middle. So if we look at Lindsey Graham, since 
John McCain's unfortunate passing, what we see is, one, a guy who is a creature of the Senate who is certainly not considering what he called um, his first attempt at running for president a presidential thumping. But you know what? His behavior, remember that in 2015, Lindsey Graham called Donald Trump a xenophobic race baiter and urged him to get out of the race. Since then, he became one of the president's favorite golf buddies. But over the past few weeks, we've seen more of the old Lindsey Graham than the new Lindsey Graham. Now, I think he safely believes he does not have to worry about a challenge on the right for the South Carolina senatorial primary. But he is looking at a really strong Democratic challenger, the former, um, um, a former legislator, um, and um, and the president and the chairman of the Democratic Party in South Carolina, really impressive young uh, lawyer, um, running against him in the general. Uh, and so we see in the past few weeks a different Lindsey Graham. A Lindsey Graham that I recognize, who has strongly condemned the potential of Chinese interference in Hong Kong, who has formed a Teddy Roosevelt conservation caucus around the issue of climate change and urged the president to accept reality in a public way. Um, He's opposed the president's plan to pull out troops from Afghanistan and the reduction in foreign aid numbers. Wow. Wow. And, you know, one must ask two questions. Is Graham's shift over the past few weeks because what he's hearing back at home in the district? I mean, he even had very kind words for Joe Biden. And when asked about the possibilities of a Biden presidency um, this week in South Carolina, I was, you know, he was surprisingly um, warm in his comments about uh, what a wonderful person Joe Biden is. Um, And, you know, one has to ask whether what he's hearing in South Carolina, a bulwark of the Republican Party, whether or not those constituents are saying, you know, Lindsey, you need to be a little more independent. We like the old Lindsey Graham better than the new Lindsey Graham. That's that's one of the messages I believe he's hearing in South Carolina. But if that is if that supposition is correct, based on the evidence, then it adds credibility to what Joe Walsh is saying. When a Republican incumbent with a better than 50% approval rating in a solidly Republican red state moves away from the president, then there is obviously room for a challenge to that president. And the funny part about all of this around Joe Walsh, which brings us back to my biggest concern, debt and deficits, is that Walsh was a Tea Party. In in 2010, he ran on a platform of fiscal responsibility. In this editorial in the New York Times this week, he is so alarmed about the renting of the fabric of the unity of the American people that debt didn't even make the column even though President Trump in one term will add $4 trillion to the national debt. It's kind of like, 
Ah, who's counting? Which brings us to the Democrats who are living in a glass bubble. So you're going to have to kind of um, take a mental um, uh, trip, science fiction trip with me here. Living in a glass bubble is really quite different than living in a glass house. In a glass house, the windows can indeed be broken by flying projectiles. But it appears that leading Democrats, according to all the polls and procrastinators, uh, prognosticators, all the people who are leading, you know, who are the leading candidates, although no voter has been asked to cast a vote yet, they're not living under in a glass house. They're living under some kind of a glass dome that that magically uh, over the United States as though, you know, I've seen it in cartoons and, and I've seen it, I think the Simpsons, where, where you have this big dome over the city, and, and it's sometimes in science fiction films, and then you see the little the airplanes and so forth flying underneath the dome. And you know why I think that's true? Because none of these guys have a national security strategy. It's as though they think you just push the button on the Reliance desk and in the Oval Office, and this giant dome will come down and protect the good old USA and its citizens from flying projectiles fired by hostile forces or asymmetric cyber warfare or, God forbid, some external terrorism or terrorism overseas or even the remote possibility that China might decide to make a demand on the $1.1 trillion in treasury bills, notes, and bonds that it holds. Yes, the the largest single foreign debt, debtor, um, um, or debtor for, for the, the United States is the debtor too, okay? The largest holder of U.S. foreign debt, 27% of our foreign debt, is China. So what if? So I spent about a day reading Elizabeth Warren's myriad plans for gun confiscation on free college and a huge role for the U.S. government in consumer controlling consumer behavior and bad CEO behavior, climate change, free health care, a new deal for the American Indians. You know, those those people, those those people who inadvertently helped her to get a tenured faculty position at Harvard, you know, those American Indians. And all of this is paid for by her tax on the assets of those over worth over $50 million. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Her tax only raises $2.75 trillion over 10 years. And that's about a third of the projected current federal deficit over that same period at current spending levels without enacting a single solitary one of her plans. And it begs two questions. What about controlling debt? Remember when you were elected in 2010 and controlling debt was a priority to you, Senator? And the other question is, if the oceans can no longer protect us and there isn't an impenetrable glass dome over the United States because it's not feasible. What is your national security plan? Her plan is to cut the defense budget, strengthen our our alliances. Have you ever heard of CETO, 
Senator Warren and Kashmir or India and Pakistan, we have an alliance in, within CETO that we would have to uphold if war breaks out over Kashmir. So I'm with you when you say you need to invest in this country in, in, in infrastructure and in education. But both Warren and Bernie Sanders forget that our enemies have a vote. And the weaker we are militarily, the more likely they are to vote for naked aggression. And the more we are in debt, the weaker we will become militarily. militarily. And on that, on that consequential note, we're going to go take a quick commercial break. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And you know what? Um, Andrew Yang has even more plans on his site than, uh, than Elizabeth Warren does on hers, and the print smaller. Um, but what he doesn't have is a plan for national security. He's got a heading, and he's got a little couple sentence of pablum about, you know, strengthening alliances. But he's but then below that is all of his, I want to fix the VA healthcare system and blah, blah, blah. So it's more about defense. It's not really about national security. Um, he has no plan whatsoever. But I tell you what, some of the things that he would like to do to the government, I think, are worthy of some consideration. And we'll do that on another Sunday. But to finish up where we've been, okay, only the senior senator from Colorado, Michael Bennett, who's not going to be on the September Democratic uh, debate stage, has been raising the issue of wrestling our debt to the floor as a prerequisite for many of the grandiose schemes proposed by his uh, fellow Democratic hopefuls. Because you see, here's the deal. If we don't tackle debt, if we can't manage the budget, if we don't have a Congress that functions effectively as a budgeting and appropriating body, then all those grandiose schemes are nothing but lies. And I would be very fearful of a president elected who does not know that. So here's your choice. They're either lying to you now or they don't have the requisite skills to be able to govern this increasingly complex country effectively. We don't need King George III again. We don't need King Donald or Queen Camilla. But on a happier note, next week we'll have with us Karen Watson, a well-known Republican operative from Texas. She's the author of an interesting book called How Democrats Stole the Black Vote and How Republicans Can Win It Back. We're going to have a conversation that she styles as a, quote, kinder, gentler discussion about race in America, unquote. And I urge you to, ch to tune in. If you want to learn more about the topics we've discussed today or listen to a podcast of this program, go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.org, 
where you'll find a lot of material on the subject of debt and planning. Uh, And to those of you who looked for the podcast at Ricochet last Monday, I apologize. We had a technical glitch, but we're going to work our way through it. If you have, I know what interests me, but you know, what, what interests you is really more important. So if you have questions or topics you want me to ask or get answered on the air, send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or a tweet at Joyce Cordy, all one word, lowercase. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Pay attention. Oh, no, don't. Take a vacation from American politics till Labor Day. Thanks. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.